0: On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Yiska Kramer. Yiska is a corporate anthropologist. She travels the world to learn from traditional healers, leaders, surprising innovators, and random passerbys. In her stories, Yiska takes you on an exciting journey to human issues and solutions, to improve the effectiveness and results of organizations, and to make the world just a bit more beautiful. In 2013, she was chosen as Trainer of the Year She's also known for being the best selling author of Deep Democracy, Jam Cultures, Work Has Left the Building, and The Corporate Tribe, which was also the 2016 Management Book of the Year. And it's a pleasure to have you on the deep dive with me. Welcome to the show, Yitzka.
1: Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: I'm really excited to have our conversation today. And even though you've written several books, I'm going to focus most of our conversation on jam cultures and the corporate tribe. Yeah. One, because those are the books I got to read. (laughs) And also because as I was reading them, I found that there's a lot of connective tissue in the ideas that flow throughout both books. One jam cultures being more specific to diversity and inclusion and kind of covering that from a very deep perspective But generally, this idea of the corporate tribe and the culture that works in and within organizations more broadly, and there is a co-author to that book as well, so I don't want to just ignore Danielle Braun. She is a co-author of of that book, so shout out to Danielle if she happens to listen to this. But I see that there's a lot of connection and overriding of those two concepts. So I'm going to start first with Jam Cultures. And I want to give you an opportunity to share what was the motivation behind taking on this topic or connective topics around diversity, inclusion, and what that all means.
1: That's a wonderful question. It's been with me all my life. I think as a child, I was just curious and surprised. I mean, within the Netherlands, we grew up in the North. I had grandparents in the South. and We are a very small country, but the culture is really different. And I was wondering, you know, why do they do it that way? And why do other people do it this way? And on a very small kind of, as a child, wondering why people would make fun of each other if they do things differently. And while I grew up being, well, I don't know, it's just almost, it's touched and sad and angry. Why if people do things differently that we tend to start hitting each other instead of asking questions. So for me, I think we can do better we can do better in the world, we can create better places. And as an anthropologist, I try to understand how people shape those cultures and how cultures shape us. And I find it very curious that we as people are able to create places and things that nobody really wants. So unsafe environments or unfunctional families or organizations who don't hit their targets or have crap leadership. So How can we create and shape cultures in which every person has its place? We can utilize talents. And yes, that's what inclusion is all about.
0: Now, early on in the book, you do spend some time walking through your background, how you personally wrestled with even the notion of not just writing the book, but engaging in these sort of topics in the first place. And so I want to give you an opportunity not to re-litigate that argument in the book, but why you thought more generally it was important to face some of those issues in advance of critique or maybe as a part of critique that has happened in different periods.
1: Yeah. People can't see me, but I'm white. I'm a woman. That's my minority thing. But for the rest, I'm pretty much in a majority field in many cases. So just from my appearance, it's easy to blend in in many spaces. So having the conversation around the importance of diversity sometimes felt that it wasn't my space to do so. It was other people. It was their discussion, people of color, people of, I don't know, disabilities. At the same time, no, it's our issue. So I sometimes struggle with that. And the other one is that I find it very, very intense topics. Emotions are high, obviously, because people feel excluded. And I've been working around this as long as I can remember. But stepping up to it, it's easier to talk about creative problem solving or strategic sessions or sales. But stepping up to this topic is more difficult. And because of who I am and the way I look and where I live, I can just as easily just step back and that's my privilege. I can just leave it. Why? It's easy. I can just blend in and that's it. But I find it very important that everyone takes his part in this discussion. And for me, I feel that I represent a group who needs to move now and needs to move in a sense that start making a movement, start being involved and have the conversation around that together because, well, we shape the cultures together and let's take every voice seriously. So that's why, and when I was writing the book, and I've been working around this topic, can't remember, since I was 20-something, knowing that that it's always linked to politics, it's always linked to emotions, it's always linked to feeling insecure or not knowing what to say or saying the wrong words. While I was writing the book, I was trying to find a kind of neutral, upbeat language, positive language to talk about these issues. And while writing it, I was fearful and hopeful at the same time, that that would succeed. If not, then I would. I knew I would get like the full blast. But I noticed that working in organizations and I use spoken words, I use music, I use academic language, I use group dynamics. And that blend, I think I somehow found the language, at least that what people say to me, is that everyone feels recognized and challenged at the same time. And that's exactly what I was aiming at.
0: In. You know, how do you have that balance? Because you mentioned a a few things in that answer that I thought were really interesting. This notion of finding the right language that invites people in, but also I think like neutral was a word in there. At least I think I heard that. I hope I heard that I'm not putting words in your mouth. (laughs) Um, So I want to get to how does one balance that in an environment and in conversations that you rightly noted are filled with an emotional space. And just to clarify or make a more clear piece as to why the emotion part is important, because, and this is my own kind of editorial, I feel like sometimes emotion is considered like the bad thing, right? And we use like so-called rational arguments in order to like justify one thing or another. And then emotion is used as a way to kind of push back on folks. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of navigate like why striking that balance was so important in the work in order for it to be effective.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, love is also a very strong emotion. So to me, emotions are not negative, but they can be in the way for connection because we have judgments and we can't listen to each other. So striking that balance, what I see and how I see it is that in Jam Cultures, I created the Jam Circle, which is kind of a model to understand this process, which is very complex, of course, but there's different steps and phases. So first of all, we just live our lives, be who you are, show who you are, show your colors, anything, live it. And then once in a while, we are confronted with people who say things or express opinions or do stuff. It really hits us. So we have reflex reactions, I'd say, to differences. And the differences can be a different opinion, a different way of life, different look, anything. And everyone has that. That's a universal thing. So we have reflex reactions. And sometimes the reflex is, they're always emotional. And sometimes it's like, oh, that is really cool. Tell me more. And that's the easy one. Because then we can continue. You tell me more, I tell more. And then we need to jam together and find our ways to create something new. But many times the reflexes are more like, huh, (laughs) why, or no kidding, or act normal, or what's up? Because we're challenged in our views. So the first thing is to open up to the dynamics which are there within the field of experiencing differences. And the opening up bit, that would be the second step. After living your life, you want to open up To whatever is going on in the dynamics of differences. And that is, I think, part of, whoa, this is really different. I can't hardly imagine how that would be. And part of is always linked to power dynamics. Because when we shape cultures, we shape it in interaction and decision making. And together, nothing has meaning of itself. That's like a crest course anthropology. Nothing has meaning of itself. We have to create it together. And together, we define that's good and bad and right and wrong and true and false. Then we get the norms based on what we find valuable, the values and the norms. And then we solidify it in the world around us. Now, if we are confronted with something which is different, that gets shaken up. So then the question is, wait, can I still do what I'm used to? You know, someone is... Attacking my view or challenging it for at least. So if we open up to the emotions and we live through it, we get to the point where we can actually wonder and ask questions and then we can explore. And the exploration phase is usually great because that you get to the point, okay, you tell your story, I tell mine. And then many times we stop at that level. say, so, whoa, okay, we agree to disagree or you're very, very different or I see commonalities, anything like that. But what I see in organizations is if we stop like that, we don't do the shaping of the culture because together we still need to decide. So what then is the good and bad for us now in this moment? So we have to create together to say, well, this is good and bad and right and wrong. So that would be then the jam circle. You live your life, you open up to differences and the dynamics of emotions. Then you explore and then you create. And in the creation Again, the power dynamics kick in because now, okay, we've got all views. So who is then to decide? And obviously the link there is who's deciding where to spend the money on? Who's deciding what the world looks like? But on a more emotional, maybe personal or group level, who decides if I am allowed to join in or am I excluded now? And that's power. And there's nothing wrong with power. It's what we have. We're human beings. We're hierarchical beings. We create that but then is it because someone is has a louder voice or more money or is part of headquarters so who's deciding what so if we have an open discussion am i really asked to not only join in the discussion but also join in the decision making process and that's true inclusion because then suddenly we have to create something new together and then some people might feel that they lose out because they have to change and others feel they gain and then we have a losing gain feel It's one world. So the idealist in me is saying, well, it's not about losing and gaining. It's about deciding and creating something that fits for all at this very moment in time. Yeah. So the balancing out to me is that we listen to all voices, each and everyone, the minority, the majority. We need to listen to the white tears, to the black tears, to all the other tears. We need to listen to the laughter, the fun, and make sure that we somehow find a way that we can hear all those voices in an equal manner. And that's, of course, where it is difficult, because we tend to listen to one person or one group of representatives easier than the other.
0: And when you go into the ideology of the jam circle, and there's five principles that run throughout the book, there's difference, there's power, there's truth, trust, and courage, that sort of are the big categories. And then the circle kind of runs through all of them, right? And I spent a lot of time on power. Power's already kind of come up in the course of this conversation. And I've written a fair amount on DEI, kind of the Western acronym, particularly the American acronym. And I've always maintained that these are conversations largely around power, when you kind of cut to the chase and kind of get away from all the other stuff. And in that construct or in that thinking, how do we get folks to understand that that power shift by its nature, or at least maybe this is my opinion, by its nature, not everybody's going to be sharing that power. It's just not going to happen that way.
1: Why not? Why is that your opinion?
0: That's my opinion, because if I look at, let's just say like jobs, for example, right? I'm going to keep it like a very basic thing. If we're talking about ad agencies and there's, I don't know, 50 creative directors and all of those creative directors, simple math, right? This is not the case, but let's just say, you know, let's just say 50 of that 40 are white, right? And that actually might be accurate because I probably know like the two or three that are Black. <laughs> um, if the desire is to have more Black creative directors and the pool of available creative directors isn't growing, then... It stands to reason that some of those creative director jobs currently held by those that are white are going to have to go to those that are not, right? So this is a very basic example, imperfect example, obviously, because I'm talking about like positions within organizations and all that kind of stuff, which is different from the idea of who gets what in a society, right? And I've also maintained this, that the idea of scarcity is a lie. There's abundance everywhere in the world. We have more than enough for everybody to have. But we also have systems that encourage and tell a different story. And that's been the story of the past thousand years, right? At least, right? Kind of industrial age story. So I say all that to say that as we change that story, how do we change our relationship to power in the context of which we've been having this conversation
1: that's such a good question i think for once is that we as people we humans we are hierarchical beings so there's hierarchies there's ranking all over the place so there will always be ranking differences and the main thing is is that we need to see that that it's not one person but it's on different topics so i can rank you out on the topic of i don't know maths it's not the case because i'm really crap at maths but let's say but I'll be in a different ranking position when it comes to something else. So I think that's one of the solutions that we see that there is like, do you say that in English? Relief, there's differences in how we define our ranking. And there, if we start shuffling it, then there will be people on different positions. But the ones who are in a high rank position for whatever reason, it comes with responsibilities. So if you have a high rank, no matter why, but somehow you are in this group, in your family, your organization, you have high rank and you call the shots. That's great. But then it comes with responsibilities in the means that you need to play it well and share it. So share your rank, share your privilege. And how do you share it? And to whom do you share it with? I find it difficult that people see privilege as a bad thing. It's used sometimes as like almost like a spitting word, like you have privilege. We all have privilege. It's something we just have. The only thing is you could spit at You don't share your privilege. That's the thing we need to look at, in my opinion. And it's interesting. It's the dynamics also like with men and women. If I have a, we have a very small organization with nine people, we're looking for a new deep democracy instructor. And looking at our team, we want diversity. And that we only got two men. So we are specifically inviting men to call and apply And the interesting thing is now that women call us angry, saying, well, hey, what's up, why are you excluding me? Well, it's the same dynamics. If you look for something different, then you need to actively find something different. And yes, there are different representations and finding ways to make sure that everyone can join. And if we don't actively do that in this example, There's lots of women who want to do this job, but we specifically want looking at our diversity because we believe that it will give different views. We need to actively look at that. So you have always the tension when you are specific, you're almost excluding. So in an exclusion, it's part and parcel of the same thing. And that's where we group animals. When we include, we also exclude. That's the whole difficulty.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to watch Netflix, then I can't watch Hulu, right? And if I no. can't watch Hulu, I can't watch HBO Max. So to a certain extent, yes, our choices by the nature of making a choice, right? If I go into a store and I want a shirt, and I'm going to buy a blue shirt, then hey, all the other pink, yellow and other kind of shirts just got somebody else got to buy it else, right? <laughs> Assuming <laughs> yeah. the sizes all kind of net out. But there's a lot in that that I want to ask because the privilege point I want to Get to kind of separately, but this is going to sound a little facetious in the example that you just gave. But actually, this is kind of really how I think. So maybe I'm just protecting myself by couching it as being facetious. But
1: what's facetious? I'm not native, so
0: meaning like I'm kind of half making a joke, but I'm kind okay. of serious at, at the same time, or I'm making light of something, and but I'm kind of not that kind of thing when you're describing like your internal situation, this is not a critique of your hiring practices, but when I hear that example, me sitting here, I'm like, yo, them dudes going to be okay. They're going to find a job. They're going to be all right. Right? Like I don't need a course correct for those who just have stuff. Right? Like I feel like I got to, if justice is going to be served, Sometimes you got to overcorrect or we're never going to land in a place that feels right. Right. So I'm curious, like, how do you balance that?
1: Yeah. And I feel you. I hear you. We had the same thing previous when we were all an all white team and we want more color. So do you then specifically hire for color or not? And somehow that feels, it feels awkward anyway, because you want to work with people who, who are the quality discussion around diversity. The thing is, we work around the topics of diversity. We use deep democracy, which is a very inclusive decision-making process. And what we see is that the people who we attract in clients and people who come to our courses, they are mainly women. And so again, the same counts for representation. It's not that I'm trying to save the world for men or women. I'm trying to make sure that this topic is carried by all voices. And it's not just one voice or the other. So I believe that every organization benefits from a variety of people. Now, within our organization, we lack one character, in this case, man. But we like different religion as well. So looking at deciding where to look for, it's obvious that we want to have the best instructors. That's clear. That's not even an issue. But it does mean that the way you look and your experience and your background and what you experienced in life, it has an impact on how we connect with one another. So that's why. That's the only reason.
0: And before I get to the privilege thing, I want, because this was one of my questions and this actually gives me a perfect time to kind of work it in there in the sense that when we talk about differences and differences is a big part of the book, obviously, right? And we're talking about differences right now. Like how do we construct a team, how do we build an organization? And what my question is, how do we go beyond the superficial differences and into the deeper differences that are more around your values and start to talk about culture? And I'll use an example of, we have a saying here among Black people, for example, that your color ain't always your kind, right? And what that means is that just because someone is Black doesn't mean they're going to have the best interests of Black people at heart, right? Like we have Condoleezza Rice, we have Clarence Thomas, numerous traitors, right, who line up with those who will wish to do our community's harm, right? So in that meaning, just because someone has the same kind of background as me, or at least from a skin tone perspective, doesn't mean they're going to be with me, right? So I'm using that example to say, like, how do we get to these deeper instances, right? Because it's been one of my challenges with those who will say like, oh, we just need to hire more women. But I'm like, hey, Margaret Thatcher existed, right? She's horrible. So I don't need more (laughs) Margaret Thatchers, right? Like the fact that she's the first female prime minister for the UK. I wish it had been someone who wasn't evil and terrible, but we got stuck with her. So I don't celebrate her being the first woman prime minister. She sucked. She's just an example, right? There's many monsters out there. So how do we move past that sort of thing into something that is deeper? I think
1: it goes hand in hand. It goes hand in hand. Because if I work on diversity, equity, inclusion... And all the things, inclusive decision-making, all that with our organization. And we would be all people who look like me, like clones of me. The critique would be, hey, (laughs) that's wrong. So there is something with our backgrounds. Because to me, it goes back to how people shape cultures, cultures shape people. So there is something that the people I surround myself with, they influence my view on the world. And we tend to surround ourselves in families with people who look like us. We all do that. So that means that if you go by the first pick of people you want to work with, it might be that group and you lack worldviews. So for me, that looking for someone who looks different, I'm actually trying to find people who view things differently, who feel things differently. And many times it does go hand in hand. Not always, of course, but that's for once. And the other thing is, is then how do we get past that? To me, it has to do with having very courageous conversations and allowing us to be hurt, hurt in the sense that it can hurt me, that it's painful. And listen to that would be helpful as well and have the conversations where we are in doubt together, that we meet each other in the spot where we actually have no idea. And that is frightening to many people and to me as well, sometimes that we talk and we say, well, but really, and how do I deal with that? So there are superficial differences in views but there are hardcore differences when it comes to certain values or if people treat me differently because I'm a woman and we see what's going on in many places in the world around only the gender issues or color issues or whatever issue, youth or. So I think we move beyond that if we have the courage to open our hearts. It's almost like today I worked in a primary school with a couple of hundred teachers this morning and they said oh in the end it's all about communication is it and to me it's like yeah in a way it is and at the same time maybe it's even on a deeper level it's all about connection and communication is the vehicle but connection is trying to open ourselves on all levels with our mind and our heart and then listen to what's there and I think we go past all these kind of arousal and chaos. When we do that, and then we do get to like the classic, it's all about love. And love in organizations, we call it connection. That's fine. We call it differently. But it's all around, am I allowing myself to be touched by you? Sometimes I say that we need, as a metaphor, I use jam sessions, like in music. And at the same time, I sometimes use the metaphor of a campfire. For some, that's easier. So a campfire, to me, is a type of conversations which are transformational. There's not transactional. Transactional are bullet point meetings. We shuffle bullet points around, that's fine. It's good, it's productive, we need to do that. But transformational, a campfire, to me, like a gem session, is where I am willing to share whatever is on my mind and my heart and what I find difficult, even when it goes to money and strategies and organizations. But I'm willing to do that, and you are willing to do that as well, and we both are willing to be hit by what the other is saying, to be touched. And we are willing to share that. And then we are willing to even change our minds. And that's it's an important one. Because we shape our cultures together, which goes in storylines, how we view the world. So if I have the conversation and it changed me, maybe I view it differently. And then I might make choose different behaviors and choose different ways in procedures and to spend money. And we together shape, solidify a different world in our physical world surrounding us. So to me, that's why in the jam circle, I say, well, there's reflex reactions. We need to open up to what's going on. And that is looking within ourselves. And that's where I many times feel that when we are confronted with someone else, when we are in shock or in awe with someone else, it's actually where we meet ourselves and not the other person.
0: In the jam session and telling confronting these differences and and being in conversation with these differences. I remember there was a section of the book, I'm paraphrasing, that talks about how obviously there's different cultures even within a place like Europe, right? That being Dutch is going to be different than being English, which is different than French and Italian and so on and so forth. And one can make us a similar kind of analogy, though more imperfect, United States federal system, but different states and regions have their own kind of thing, but we're kind of under this other bigger umbrella, right? So when I read that, I kind of thought about it and it kind of came to me in that this idea that we're all different and folks will kind of like maybe, you know, give each other shit like, oh, you know how those French are, you know how these people are, you know how those Texans are, you know, whatever the thing might be as we kind of have these kind of whatever tongue-in-cheek types of conversations. Some serious though, and some also just jokes right gotta have a little bit of humor right sure but then i started thinking about when we get past that are we still operating within sort of larger systems that link our stories despite the fact that they are different right so if i'm looking out at the prevailing systems of the world today it's a capitalist system right and editorial point, I would make the argument that that's the prevailing story, right? That whether you're in Holland or you're in the United States or you're in somewhere else, the prevailing story that we're telling ourselves is a capitalist story. And within that story is all of the things that have gotten us here. It's extraction, it's colonialism, it's slavery, it's exploitation and so on and so on and so on. So our inability to write thus far to write, co-create another story kind of has us spinning our wheels in this one, right? Because we have the wealth meaning like the privilege, right? And the power, but that wealth and privilege and power is operating through that system. So, I think that's where I'm trying to get at like the confrontation of that bigger system rather than the nation state system, right? Because that's the mythology, Mm -hmm. right? So how does that play into the power conversation? Because there's folks on the outside of that that they can't really fully participate in that, right? Like the museums aren't going to empty, right? The money isn't going to go back, but maybe it should, maybe it can, right? So that was why I wanted like the justice piece comes up with like, if we're going to have a different story, you kind of got to give me back all that power, right? (laughs) Because that power was taken. So how do we wrestle with that? Like power wasn't just a default, right? These countries built their wealth and their power that they now use to reflect on people of color by stealing from
1: them. Yeah. And that's a fair point. So how do
0: we fight through that?
1: It's difficult because it's complex. It's very hard to link it back to causal, like clear bits and pieces. It's too holistic. So I don't know how we should repay anything. That's a conversation that's complicated. If I look forward, I'd say more from the, how we shape cultures perspective is we shaped this larger system by putting money and systems as the core value. Now, if we decide to make something else the most valuable thing, we'll start making different decisions. So Mm -hmm. if we step out that framework, not the money bet, although it is important, don't get me wrong. But if we step to a new system, we could say, and that's a shift you see on different places now, you could say, let's put people, human, let's make it human centric. And in a way, that's great. You see that in different organizations, human-centric. So it's servant leadership, it's human-centric, et cetera, uh, people first. But a new thing is now popping up, and I think that is valuable, and we should step forward to that one, saying, well, we don't do it human-centric, we put life in the center. So we make it life-centric. And if we start doing that, then the trees will have a voice too. And our grandchildren... We are now taking away their future, if we think about how we deal with the earth. So if we make it life-centric, then the decisions we need to take as people, and that can be micro level, or it can be macro or anything in between, let's assume that from now on in every board meeting, everywhere, but also the board meeting around your kitchen table, the small ones, that we say, okay okay, our aim is that all the choices we make in how we organize our lives is that it does good for life on Earth. Then things will change.
0: Now, I'm really glad that you brought that up. One, because it's in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't have to like get to it. We kind of got to it naturally. But I was really struck by that point that you also do make in the book that we need to change the way and reorient the way we focus on the planet to make ourselves more, in the parlance of the language, inclusive of all living systems. Yeah. That we are just one part of it, which ties to the hierarchy and power, right? We have traditionally thought of ourselves as separate from or above.
1: Well, we started to do that. Traditionally, if we link it all back to all our ancestors, we didn't. But somehow we defined it differently along the lines of history. And now I think it's time to rethink that. So inclusion, diversity, equity, include it's more than just you and me. It is the past, the present, the future. It is the trees. It is places where the rivers start to get their voice. If I'm correct, it was New Zealand where a river won a lawsuit because the voice of the river was taken into account in a decision that had to be made. And because this is to some, and maybe to some listeners, it's very whizzy wuzzy. like, yeah, right, the river, get real, like, get with the program. But if you think about it, so that's then, what do we need? I think we need to sit back for a little bit and to ponder our minds around this and say, well, is that the case? Because otherwise it is a reflex reaction, emotional to, ha, yeah, right. But let's open our minds. Let's open up to the emotions here. And here's what we see across the globe where people are fighting now because there is oil companies running through or pipelines or gas or it's hurting the environment. We have climate change issues. So it is a moment where we can rethink. So to me, if I work with organizations, because that's what I do, I'm a corporate anthropologist. So... I apply the knowledge and skills of anthropology within organizations, from very small ones to the corporates. And then the step to life-centric might be too big. So then it's a huge step to put it more human-centric. Let's start with that.
0: And that's a perfect bridge, because I as promised, I do want to spend time on how these issues and these topics kind of swim together, coalesce and connect, and talking about this idea of anthropology and the role it can and should play within organizations, I want to give you an idea to kind of talk about how that wrestles or manifests rather in an organization, right? Because one of the things that struck me is that I think anthropology has this idea of like exploration, right? Like I'm from here and I'm going off to some other place and I'm going to kind of dive in and figure out what's going on. But now we have a flattening with proximity, right? Not in the world is flat kind of way, but in a, the organization I'm working with doesn't need to be 4,000 miles away. It can be where I am. And it's just as sovereign as maybe what somebody in 1920 would have thought about going to do on a quote unquote tribal excursion of some sort. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of talk or think through that notion around proximity as it pertains to the use or the validity in a corporate space when it comes to anthropology.
1: Yeah, I think when you look at the corporate world or organizations, then they talk about culture all the time. And they say it all boils down to the culture. And then the ones who are working with their culture, they usually had their MBAs or economics. They have no clue what culture is. So when I started working in organizations, I was hit by that. And they tr- said, well, it's very difficult to change culture. Sometimes they had the discussion if there was a culture. To me it's like the discussion, is there gravity? Of course there's culture. There's people. When there's people, there's culture. That's it. So I started working in organizations. I was asked to go to a factory in India where things went wrong and they asked me to help to improve. And then it was abroad, yes, from the Netherlands. Uh, but well it is the same like an assignment as an anthropologist. You go someplace and you walk in. So if I walk into any organization, I can ask who's the chief and the chief, it's actually the chief executive officer. That's called chief. So we call our leaders chiefs. That's what we do, sea level. And then they point someone and then I'll just ask them, who's the actual chief? And they point to someone else. We all know that. And where should I go for the decisions? And they point to the boardroom for the real decisions, you know, the ones they point to the water cooler or whatever. So. To me, we have rituals in organizations. We do stuff we don't do at home. We dress ourselves up to go to the office. You have different company clothing. So organizations create culture together and they create a logo. You can view that as a totem. So a totem is an object or something which is more than just the object. There is a whole story behind it. And if you think about organizations, they have this logo that has a specific color just try to change the color of the logo. It's absolute no-go area because it has some magic attached to it. So we create cultures. And in that sense, I say we create tribes. And I know that internationally, that is a very sensitive word to use. So let me explain that to make it very, very clear. So the book is called The Corporate Tribe because I believe that we create social groups regardless where we are, we are group people. We create social groups. And a the wolf they live in packs. And when you study wolves, they have certain things, how they create their packs. We create tribes. That's what we do all over the world because we are tribal beings. And that's nothing wrong with it, and everyone does it. So in an organization, we try to create a tribe, a community of people who believe in one story, almost have one religion, like a company religion, they have one language, they all have the same corporate lingo and they have one totem and chiefs and they do the same type of ritual. So for me, it's very, very obvious that if you want to run your company or your organization or your school effectively, it's very helpful to understand how this mechanism of culture shaping takes place, because that's where your steering mechanism
0: is. I want to continue down that road a bit while also keep an eye on the time, because I know we have two segments of the show to get to as well toward the end. But this cosmology as a practice, this idea of breaking down time and space, what people would consider magic or some sort of magical thinking, using that language within organizations is often difficult. (laughs) Even (laughs) though it might be happening, people don't necessarily think about it that way, right? The folks at Nike aren't necessarily looking at the swoosh and saying that this is a quasi-religious type of totem, but if you look at the branding and the language, the aspiration of it, it very much does tie to religious kind of iconography and language and all that kind of stuff. So having said that in practice, how do we make these links on that cultural spectrum
1: yeah I many times use double language so I talk about the leader and the chief but the logo and the totem and what I find is that organizations where I do a lot of talking I'm a keynote speaker so when I go on stage and then I have different groups and in the beginning they just look at me like what really but it makes sense instantly. So if I say, do you have enough campfire conversations? We kind of get the feel. And then I explain, if we go through change, there's always like an archetypical role in every organization, every tribe. You have the hunters, the gatherers, the magicians, the shamans, the chiefs. We all have, those are archetypes. They're everywhere and they should be. So if we think about change, then Change, usually, if you think about different communities all across the globe, who is holding the space of the change? If you think about your personal life, when you went through differences, you had to work yourself out, you know, your identity was changing. Who do you go to? You don't go to the leader. Yeah, You go to the leader for the daily rhythm, for your bread and your sleep. But you ask a coach or your doctor or a good friend or a shaman, or a magician and in organizations we call those people the consultants and the trainers and the coaches and in the HR so we do do this so you see that in organizations you have the ordinary life which we need to take care of and the extraordinary the extraordinary is where we change now if I talk with organizations and I explain it this way it makes sense and then you ask them so who is holding the space of the extraordinary and then, then it's usually silent. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we, we don't know who's taking. So to me, what I realized is that if we think about anthropology, part is the language, is the lingo of anthropologists, which is helping people because it's a very emotional human language. It's the old we kind of know. If there's two departments who are fighting each other and you say, ah, it's actually more like a clash of clans. It's like, yeah, it's more like that. There's more energy and power around it. and. On a more serious note almost, it's the academic. So an anthropologist, is it's an academic field. So we have a research method. So if you want to research your company culture to check if it's doing the right stuff, we can send out questionnaires and ask people what they do and they'll fill it in exactly what they think you want them to fill in, right? That's great, but what is it that you actually researched? So what an anthropologist does, we go what we call participatory observation. We go in and we sit around and really try to grasp the story from within. Now, that's the other thing which is helpful in our consultancy, because we do consultancy as well, that we want to understand what is the story from within using the tools and techniques of the academic field of anthropology. So it's the language, partly, and it's the research. And from the research, knowing how people shape cultures, you also know how to reshape it. And an anthropologist is trained not to influence the situation. Otherwise, you can't describe what's going on. And if you know very well what not to do, you also very well know what to do to influence the situation. Absolutely. So those are the topics that we use in our work.
0: Absolutely. and. The idea of influence, again, the kind of notion of neutrality kind of rears rears its head yet again. I want to use this next question before we get to Off the Dome and The Drop to kind of take an extension of the magic idea, the shaman. Because when we're talking about these individuals, we're also talking about physical spaces and how we design for them. There's been a, a lot of work around how do we design for Organizations to be their best. And we've all kind of seen recently, whether it's the well, when people weren't kind of working distributed or working from home or wherever you might be as you listen to this, we're all in a different flexible space, hybrid space with where we work. But, you know, I always joked around that furniture isn't culture, right? And just because an organization has the foosball table and bean bags and flavored water. That doesn't mean that they're like entrepreneurial, right? Or whatever they're kind of <laughs> lauding themselves as being. So, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about as we're doing magic and we're building temples, right? These places that we work, how does the thinking and thought process around the physical environments work yeah. in these moments? And even if there's time, how does that transcend now that we're? not in these temples that we all used to work in. And I'll leave it there before we get to the final two segments of the show.
1: Okay. So there's two small questions with huge answers. Like the second I know, one. I tried I wrote... to sneak it in there. I yeah. tried to be slick. <laughs> to answer the last one, what do we do now? I wrote a book and it's available in Dutch and German, which is called Work Has Left the Building. And the question then obviously is, will it get back in? And if so, how? So I'll just refer to, if you Google my name and culture shock in English, then you find a short movie clip, three minutes, where I explain the impact of Corona on our work in culture. So I leave it with that because it's a too long answer. But if we think about the physical space and how it's linked to culture. So then if I go back to the CRESS course of anthropology is that we create nothing as meaning of itself. Everything just is. And we have to create what we think is valuable, and from our values we create our behaviours, our norms, and then we create the furniture. If it's all aligned with our values, the um, football table, the, it will work because if we, they, we're playful, and the behaviour, then it helps if the environment is playful. But vice versa, it's not necessarily going to happen. And in that respect, I many times give the following example: Let's say that I change my personal culture, and I decide that eating healthy food is now vital. I stop with the fast food, so I want healthy. Then I realized that I need to do healthy cooking, and then I realized that I look at my kitchen, and it doesn't work. It's a crap kitchen, so I decide to save my money and to get a new kitchen, so I work very hard. I get my kitchen. I change my environment. Now, after hard work, the kitchen is finally finished, and I always put the question forward, what is the first meal you'll eat? It's pizza. (laughs) It's definitely going to be pizza. So having the environment changed in the view you have, it helps because now you are able to do so. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you change your behavior and in a very deep core level, you change your value system. But if you have an environment which is really blocking, then it does help to change it. So beanbags help but only when it really is sitting in your core values. So the same counts if I talk with HR and they say, yesterday we had the project to redefine our corporate values. Now we have the posters ready with the pictures and the slogans and with a fun factor. And now we want to roll it out in the organization with training courses. That's the best, best, before disaster because cultures don't change that way it all starts with what i call campfires or jam sessions where we sit together and say what is your view what's my view what is important what does it mean for us how is it different from what we used to how's it different from you from me so those are the courageous conversations the uncomfortable conversations and if we have wider views or diversity there, we have different options. And then obviously we have more conflicts. So we have to deal with that and we have to create something that works for us. And yes, then we look at our environment and we might need to change it. Or we change the environment and sometimes it changes our behavior a little bit. Because if I have this great kitchen, I might start cooking better food once in a while. Because it's just nicer. But it helps if the story changes as well. because we are storytelling beings. We're narrative people. We are emotional beings, even in boardrooms with spreadsheets. There's emotions behind that.
0: Absolutely emotions. I I always tell folks, I've always worked in environments where a lot of men said that there's no place for emotion in business, even as they broke everything around them. So <laughs> I, I find that always pretty ironic, um, but that was awesome. I want to get to off the dome, which are just in this case, three rapid fire questions, first thing, again, comes to mind is going to be the answer. Don't know if it's the right answer, but it's going to be the answer. And the first one is, what is or was the craziest client request you've ever received? No names are necessary to tell the story.
1: No, no. A very personal one. I'll hire you for this talk and could you please put on a nice dress?
0: That's rude. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it was
1: really strange. I didn't I didn't do it.
0: Good. <laughs> Screw those people, whoever they were. Um, <laughs> question number two. What is your most used emoji? Smile. Ah, the classic smiley face.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's a heart.
0: Ah, okay. Remix answer, the heart with a smiley face. Okay, but that's still good. At least it's all in a good positive notation. And then
1: if I link it, then it's usually the heart and that, you know, where you have your hand up, like the power thing. Okay. (laughs) So if I'm really onto it, that's actually the yin yang. So the the love and the power. Yeah. Okay.
0: Kind of like the bicep curl kind of
1: motion. There you (laughs) go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And the final off the dome question, then we're going to get to the drop. If you could instantly acquire a new skill, what would that skill be?
1: Mm, A skill, right? Yep. I would love to sing. In my next life, I want to be a singer on a huge stage and with my voice touch all different voices.
0: Okay, that's a good one. So I take it you like music, but singing might not be the thing right now.
1: Yeah, well, uh, once in a while I sing really, really nice, but once in a while I don't, and I don't have have control over that. So it would be great (laughs) if I can control my voice better.
0: (laughs) Well, that means you're the the perfect person to go out for karaoke, right? Because that's what makes (laughs) it fun.
1: that will be fun with me, yeah.
0: <laughs> right. Sometimes you nail it and sometimes,
1: <laughs> sometimes. You, either so way, it's,
0: it's good, right? It's good anyway.
1: <laughs> and I'll either. smile with it and I do the power thing and I'll wear a nice dress.
0: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we cover all the bases. <laughs> so in the time we have left, I want to get to the drop. And the drop is just something that we'll both share with our listeners. I do one thing, but most of the time people share one thing, can be anything at all that you feel like our listeners would enjoy, benefit, whatever the case might be. And I have a drop. You, I hope you have a drop. And I can go first if you want me to. Yeah, Awesome. My drop is really easy. It's simple. There's a artist, Arlo Parks. She's actually the 2021 Mercury Prize winner for her album, Collapsed in Sunbeams. And I remember when the album came out, because I'm a music guy and people were kind of buzzing like, oh, Harlow Park, she got to hear this record. I promptly downloaded the record, didn't listen to the record. And it, it has been months and its just kind of got in my queue and I just never listened to it. And I recently listened to it finally after seeing that she won the Mercury Prize. And I was like, oh, I got to listen to that record. And I did. And it was well worth it, worth all the accolades. It's just a really good moment in music for that particular artist. It's not unlike some artists that I'm very familiar with that I do like, even from like 20 years ago and longer. So I can't say that it's charting like wholly new ground, but that's also okay. Like it's fine for something to be reminiscent of something and be good in its own way. So Arlo Parks is my drop.
1: Great. I'll look it up. My drop is a book with the title, The Good Ancestor. And it's written by Roman Naric, but I probably pronounced that wrong.
0: That's okay. We go with grace.
1: (laughs) The the Good Ancestor. And it's actually, it's talking about how we can be good ancestors to our future generations. And it's packed with insights from different parts of the world, packed with anthropological views on how to be a good ancestor. So it's really making life-centric views, what we talked about, very practical. So I think it's a good rep for people who want to make it better.
0: Absolutely. That sounds like a great drop. And I feel like I've seen this title somewhere. Like, I don't know, your brain falls on many different things during the course of of our digital lives. So it does sound somewhat familiar. Nonetheless, I'll look it up to confirm that, but it sounds great. So this has been awesome. I want to thank you so much for joining me on The Deep Dive. This is a great conversation. The books are wonderful. They're thought provoking. I think they'll give you a lot of things to think about And So I have to wait till your most recent book is available in English. And then I could <laughs> then I could have you on again to talk about that. Yes. One. But um Yuska, this was an awesome conversation. and Thank you again for being on the Deep Dive. Thank you, Philip. You can listen to the Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.